Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, it's a, a good thing that we are free to be able to meet together in God's, with God's people here today and to consider God's word. Now, you know that we live in a, a culture that idolizes freedom. Uh, we talk about freedom all the time. We are a nation that was begun by seeking freedom from uh, a nation that we saw as being tyrannical towards us. And so we're a people who value freedom. And you know that we live in a spirit of the age that values freedom of expression as one of the, the greatest freedoms that we believe everyone should be able to enjoy. In fact, the spirit of the age that we live in says that you can be anything that you want to be and that not even your biology can inhibit you from being the you that you desire to be. You can determine your own identity without any kind of constraints. Now, of course, we know that uh, there is some constraint. Uh, we occasionally find that we press up against that. In fact, uh, just the other day, I was watching a video that was put up by Joseph Backholm. Uh, he works with the Family Policy Institute of Washington, and he went and visited the campus of the University of Washington, and uh, he wanted just to do an experiment. So he started off by asking students, he said, I I'm just curious, what would you say if I told you that I identify as a woman? And of course, almost unilaterally, every student said, well, I mean, if, if that's what you think that you are, then who am I to disagree with you? And then he said, okay, here, here's another thing. Uh, you'll notice I'm a 5'9 white guy. I'm curious what you would say if I now identify as a six foot five Chinese woman. In which case they started to laugh and stutter. Why? Because th there is some limitation to the insanity that biology doesn't have anything to say about who you are. 
We know that there is a a sense in which our hearts still can recognize, even the hearts of those who are far from God, that are not interpreting reality according to his word, that there is some sense that there are limits to the nature of self-expression. Still yet, the spirit of the age, it agrees with the early 20th century social activist Emma Goldman, who once called Christianity, and she did not have good things to say about it, the leveler of the human race. Not a good thing. She said it's the breaker of men's will to dare and to do. It's an iron net, a straitjacket, which does not let him expand and grow. In other words, Christianity inhibits the freedom of mankind. Now, if we're honest, we know that the Bible tells us that that is the heart response of somebody who is far from God, who is unregenerate, who has not put their faith in Christ to the idea that there is a God who is sovereign over them. That's not a surprise. It should not be a surprise to a Christian to hear somebody who does not love God say that they view Christianity as a straight jacket. It is. It is a straight jacket to the person who is opposed to God. But to the person who loves God, we have new affections. We are not the same you that we used to be. We are something new. And so as we come to the idea of freedom in Christ, what we know is, as Christians, is that freedom in Christ is not a hall pass for us to sin. It is not an enemy of our joy, but it is also not a a hall pass to sin, to seek happiness apart from God. Now, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul has been preaching the gospel for 25 years by the time he writes this letter to the Christians in Rome. And and as such, uh, he is writing to them in Romans 6, 15 to 23, where we are this morning, about this reality that... They have not been freed to sin because they are no longer under the law. Now, as Paul has done throughout, he will clarify one issue before jumping to the next and explaining and anticipating questions that Christians might have had as he is clarifying and nuancing the gospel. Well, he's doing it again this morning. You'll remember in verse 14 that we ended on last week, Paul says that Christians are not under the law, but they are under grace. And he's anticipating that, as they would have heard this, that some Jews, perhaps Jewish Christians, may have asked or even charged Paul with saying that obedience no longer matters. I mean, if we're no longer under the law, does that mean that we are free to sin? Well, Paul's going to show us that Christian freedom speaks not just of what you've been freed from, but to who or what you've been freed to. Now, our big idea this morning is this. You can write it down if you're taking notes. It's that faith in Christ is a transfer of the Christian from slavery to sin leading to death to slavery to God leading to eternal life. Faith in Christ, it signals a transfer of the Christian from slavery to sin leading to death to slavery to God, which leads to eternal life. Now, we're going to see this in a number of ways. First, uh, look with me in verse 15, where we find this question that Paul is asking on the heels of verse 
14. He says, should we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Here's what he says. Verse 15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Now, some, some have understood or may have understood that not being under Mosaic law anymore, as Paul has just said, meant that they were now free to just kind of send it up. Now, just to clarify, the phrase under law, uh, that phrase is signaling to us a move in redemptive history. So in other words, it's not a sense uh, of saying that uh, if you are under grace, that there is no expectation of obedience. No, it's signaling something more. See, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ marks a dramatic shift from the days of the Mosaic Covenant, which stood over Israel as a teacher of the law and the character of God, to the, the new covenant, which is in Christ, which is characterized by grace. Now, the Mosaic Law taught humanity that they were guilty sinners. They were unable to save themselves. Even if they had the rule book, they couldn't keep the rules. But the new covenant that arrived with Christ arrived declaring that God himself makes sinners right with him by grace and through faith and not not of human effort. It is a miracle of God. Now, here's the question. When Paul says we are not under the law, but under grace, does that mean that we are just free to send it up? Well, Paul's famous, abrupt answer, which we have seen before in verses 1 to 2, is this, by no means. Now, if you were to look up the various translations, there are many, many translations, many versions of the Bible in English. Uh, you will find that it is elsewhere translated as God forbid, absolutely not. May it never be, certainly not, in my translation, no way, Josue. Josue is Spanish for Joshua, right? So that's the way that I understand it. See, Paul's brevity and, and force, it, it, it's leaving no room for doubt about the, the actual answer to this question. He doesn't stutter. He says, those under grace, they must not sin. They must not presume on God's grace and sin. They must not interpret the fact that they are no longer under the law as an excuse to sin. As we've said before, premeditated sins that presume on God's grace face greater consequences. We need to run from sin. But let me ask you this. While most of us might affirm this verbally, know that this is what we ought to believe, have you ever found your heart doing something different in your internal mechanisms and conversations than what you know is true? Have you ever sensed that in your heart there is a kind of logic that we find in, in this idea that not being under law justifies my sin, that you begin to start having that kind of conversation with yourself? Maybe it's when you're watching TV, you're watching Netflix, and you find yourself wrestling over, I can't find anything else. Here's this show. Uh, man, I, I know that there may be, I'm not sure, there might be some nudity, there might be excessive language or gore. And, and you know that that's something that you should run from, but 
in your mind, in your heart, you hear this still small voice that says, you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. Or maybe you don't like your husband and you think Jesus would really prefer for you to be happier. And so maybe you should start looking elsewhere. I mean, I'm not under the law. Maybe you're single and lonely and you're thinking about dating people who don't love Jesus and you're not really looking for commitment. You're just looking for companionship for the moment because you're not under the law. You're free. You're freed by the gospel. Your tongue, your mouth, the words that we say, we speak loosely and poorly of others for sport, even though that we know the Bible is very clear that slander, gossip, division, all of these things are sins of the flesh, not of the spirit. Well, don't miss this. When you feel the devil's logic creeping in and justifying your sins, justifying sins against God, be reminded of the clarity of Romans 6.15. Be reminded that it doesn't matter which version you're looking at. When you're using grace or not being under the law as an excuse for sin, it is not the translation of what Paul has said, by no means, no way, Josue, I'm running from this. But there's a second thing that we find here. Notice that Paul also says you are either a slave of sin or of obedience. Now, when Paul writes, do you not know, he's assuming he's saying something that these Roman Christians do know. He's expecting them to say, of course we know that. He says it this way in verses in verse 16. Look what he says again. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, here, Paul begins with a metaphor that he's going to carry from here throughout to verse 23. It's one of slavery, a picture of a relationship between a master and a slave. And he's going to use this word for slavery or words like this eight times in these verses. And what he's doing is he's really personifying sin and obedience as these two options of masters. And he says, every human must choose which master they're going to serve, whether it be sin or obedience. You are either slave of the one or the other. In fact, Paul, I believe here, is actually flipping this conversation about the nature of freedom in Christ on its head by showing that freedom from the power of sin does not mean that you don't have a master anymore. In other words, freedom in Christ, according to the Bible, not culture, but according to the scriptures, is saying that you have been freed from something to something else. You haven't just been freed to self-expression. You haven't just been freed to creating your own sense of truth or right and wrong. No, you have been made alive to what is really real if you are in Christ. See, the question isn't simply whether or not you were a slave this morning, but what you are a slave to. Sin or obedience? And Paul says we serve obedience here 
as Christians. And then later, you'll notice if you scan down to verses 18 and 19, he says we are also slaves of righteousness. And ultimately in verse 22, he clarifies what he's saying. We are slaves of God. Now, the other option is to serve sin. You'll notice in verses 16, 17, 18, 20, and 22, he speaks of being a slave of sin. And you might wonder why Paul, in these verses, chose to front load contrasting slavery to obedience with slavery to sin. I mean, you might think, why not just lead with the good stuff, slaves of God? Like, that's a good thing, being a slave of Jesus Christ. Why obedience? Well, here's what I think Paul is doing. I think that what he is trying to do for them and for us is to help us to see the importance of obedience under the reign of grace. He's front-loading that this is a critical, a critical aspect of what it means to be under the reign of grace. Sin, sin leads to death, but obedience leads to righteousness, or right living according to God's will for our own sinful desires. We are not living according to our own sinful desires. We are living according to the will of God. Please just hear me. If you really understand what the Bible says about the nature of who God is, he is our creator. He made us. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And what that means is, is that he knows better how we were created to live, what is best for us. And if you are a Christian, one of the first things you must do as you are coming to God in faith is to accept God on his terms. And his terms are, I have created you and I know what's best for you. Even when you don't believe that I know what's best for you and you want something else, you need to understand that my will for you is better than your will for yourself. So don't miss this. Paul says no one is absolutely free, and everyone has a master. Our, our minds, our wills, our emotions, our bodies, they were once under the power of sin. If you're a believer, if, if you're not a believer, then that means that you are still under the power of sin. We couldn't even want what was best for us. We couldn't even want what we ought to want. And yet the Christian has been delivered from servitude to sin to servitude of obedience. You might ask what the Christian is called to be obedient to if he or she is no longer under the Mosaic law. Now, some say there's not a law in the dispensation of grace, that we're all free to, to wait for Christ to come back. Others, covenant theologians, would break up the law into three parts, the civil, ceremonial, and moral, and they would say that we are no longer as Christians accountable to the civil and the ceremonial but we are accountable to the moral. Those 10 commandments imbibe the, the moral law of God. Now, I take it that the new covenant has arrived with a, a new law. The Mosaic law was part of the Mosaic covenant, but we have a new law in Christ that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's the same law that Paul refers to as the law of Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.21. Now the resurrected Christ pointed his disciples to make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that he commanded them in Matthew 28 to 20. 
He is raised from the dead. He is speaking with all authority in heaven on earth. And he says, I want you to go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you. And and what he has taught them is understanding the scriptures in light of who he is. So all of those 10 commandments are understood in the fullness of who Christ is. In other words, you can't have one God if you aren't pursuing that one God as a triune God who has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. And you can go on down the list. Jesus, we find in John 13, 34, gave a new commandment. And he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, so also are you to love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, this commandment that he is giving them to love one another, just as he has loved them, points to the love that he would show them at the cross, a sacrificial kind of love. That is what is going to, he says, cause others to notice that you are following Christ. And later, the apostle John, who wrote John 13, also wrote 1 John 3, 23. And speaking to Christians who he is trying to give assurance in the face of false teachers about their salvation, about trusting the true gospel. He says in 1 John 3, 23, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And if you want to understand how this law fleshes itself out, it's through understanding all that the Bible has taught in light of who Christ is. See, Jesus didn't die to liberate us from the power of sin and death so we continue living like slaves to sin. He he wanted to free us up to love sacrificially rather than living selfishly. Now, Paul almost sounds like up to this point in verse 16, Christians are simply left with kind of this choice. Are you going to be a, a slave of sin and serve sin, or are you going to serve obedience? But catch what Paul says in verses 17 to 18. He comes in with some gospel hope, and here's what we find. We find third, that Paul thanks God that Christians are now obedient from the heart. He he thanks God that Christians are now obedient from the heart. Now pay close attention to what Paul says here. Paul just said you could be a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. And then in verse 17, he erupts in this, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says, you'll either be a slave to sin or obedience and then he follows it up with, but thanks be to God. Now here's where I want to ask, what is he thanking God for? We'll come back to that. So, So let's talk about what he says after that, and then we'll come back to that. Uh, Notice, Paul is thanking God for this, that you who were once slaves of sin, now he's speaking of of a time before they were slaves of obedience. Back then, your old self, you once not only could sin, but you weren't unable not to sin. You could only sin prior to this thing that God has done. He says that was your old self destined for death. 
But now, Paul says, they have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. See, Paul here is, is highlighting their conversion. When they first demonstrated that obedience of faith, the obedience of faith that he mentions both in the introduction of this letter in Romans 1.5, and then in the conclusion of this letter in Romans 16.26. In fact, these are the only two uses of that phrase in all of the Bible. But did you catch that that obedience, that obedience, it arose from the heart. It, it wasn't something that was enforced on them from the outside, as though they were molded from the outside. There is something from the inside that arose in obedience to God. Now, the heart in the Bible, it refers to kind of the center core of, of who a person is. It speaks of that person's mind, will, emotions, everything that makes you, you. Your wants, your desires, all of those things. But here, Paul says that their faith was actually a giving of oneself wholly to choosing to obey God. That wasn't their, their, their life before. You'll remember back in Romans 1 and 2 and 3 that there was none that was righteous. There was none that sought after God. But here we have Christians who are seeking God from the heart. There is something that is dramatically changed within them. Their faith is wholehearted, not flippant and fickle. I believe this is also highlighting the fulfillment of the promises of the new covenant that were anticipated in the prophets. For instance, if you look at Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, he's an Old Testament prophet, and yet he spoke and looked forward to this coming day of a new covenant that would come with all kinds of new blessings. And he says in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28, he says, on this day, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you catch that? Ezekiel says when the new covenant comes and grace arrives, you're not going to be non-obedient anymore. It's like actually going to cause you to want to be obedient from the heart. And Paul, Paul understands that that new covenant has arrived and it is characterized by obedience to God from the heart. Now, what does Paul mean by obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed? You'll notice that this passive verb for committed, this teaching that you were committed, is a word that also means to deliver or to hand over to. Now, some have taken this to mean that the standard of teaching is the thing that's being handed over to believers, but I think the imagery is, is actually a little bit different. I understand it here to communicate that God himself has handed over these Roman Christians to the standard of teaching that they have now embraced in the gospel. He has handed them over to the truth. They were living for a lie, and now they have been given to God's truth. And so when you read in verse 18, I think it's summarizing what he just said in verse 17, and that's this, the reality that God has transferred the believer from the realm of sin to the realm of righteousness. There has been a status change. They have applied for a change of address. It has been accepted and they have been moved. But did you catch what Paul thanks God for? He thanks him for the Roman Christians 
being obedient from the heart. Now, this might sound a little bit funky to you. In fact, uh, if you've got kids, I've got an illustration that might help you figure out why this probably sounds strange. Uh, I have three sons and a daughter, and just imagine for a second that one of my sons, Benjamin, I ask him to go wash my car, and he goes out and he washes my car. And I'm talking like you can see yourself in it, right? Like it is shining, it's sparkling. Uh, you no longer see like nasty messages written in the dirt that's on the windows. It's looking good. And I'm like, man, this is great. And I, I just, at dinner that night, praise him in front of the family. I praise John for what a good job he's done. And Ben's like, dad, I did that. And I'm like, I know, didn't John just do a great job? In fact, John, here's 20 bucks, man. I know you've never seen one of these, but this is it. He's like, I didn't know Abraham Lincoln was on a twin. Don't worry about that. And he's like, thanks, Dad. You're welcome. Well, what's weird about that? What's it Ben cleaned the car, not John? So why am I giving Ben credit for something that John did? Well, here we find that you have Christians being praised for the obedience of their faith. And yet here we find a kind of doxological gratitude that Paul is giving to God because they have faithfully believed. Now, here's what I think this means, at least on a, a basic level. It's that he understands and thanks God for the reality that these Roman Christians, their obedience from the hearts is a work of God, that God ultimately takes credit for it. Does it mean that Humanity did not need to respond in faith and repentance, but that God is ultimately the one that receives glory for their salvation, even in that obedience of faith that was first displayed at conversion and followed up by baptism. Now, his work made them obedient from the heart to the gospel. So in verse 16, believers, believers are called to obey. You, you must obey God. There's imperatives to the, the nature of the gospel. But in verse 17, he quickly says, God is given glory for the new hearts that result in this heartfelt obedience. Now, when we talk about sanctification, which is just a big word that means putting sin to death in your life and living unto God, the Bible presents two realities simultaneously. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over all things. There's nothing outside of the sovereign rule and power of God. And yet at the same time, we find that man is responsible. Man and woman, we are responsible agents that God has created. We're responsible for the decisions that we make. We're responsible for our sin. But don't misunderstand in this discussion of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Don't misunderstand which one is de dependent on the other? Now, I think we know this. I think we know that our obedience to God is completely dependent on God's grace. We must obey, but we cannot obey without a work of God. We must obey, but we, we cannot obey without God powerfully at work in us, both to will and to act for his good pleasure. We, we must have God to help us. We are completely dependent on him. That's why I love this phrase that Jerry Bridges uses in a number of his works, uh, including disciplines of grace. It's a phrase that's become famous. It's, it's dependent responsibility. I love the simplicity of it. 
It describes the nature of the Christian life. We have a dependent responsibility. If you are clamoring about the responsibility of man before God, of woman before God, without highlighting our absolute need and dependence on God, that we've misunderstood the hope that is given to us in the scriptures. We need God. We must love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We must love one another. We must not steal, covet, or be jealous. We must be slow to anger. When you start reading the imperatives of Scripture, if you start thinking to yourself, did that, did that, did that, did it all by myself, you've lost sight of the gospel. All of those things are only possible in the context of God's grace, with his help, with his power, with his spirit, with the heart that's been changed. I still remember I, I taught Sunday school class when I was in seminary, and there was this brother named Jerry, an older Christian, who when we would go through the, the, the Sunday school lesson every day, he would ask the same question. He would say, I know the Bible says that I need to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I don't, so what hope is there for me? And every Sunday for three years, Jerry, your hope is Jesus. The only way that you can actually please God is by faith in Christ, by depending on him, by praying to him. And we understand this dependent responsibility in one really clear sense. We preach to ourselves, but we pray to God. We preach what God's word says about who we are to ourselves. We don't pray to ourselves, we preach to ourselves, and we pray to God. We ask for him for help because we know that we are in desperate need of his help to do what he has called us to do. We are fully dependent on the grace of God. That means that we must, we must not lose sight of the power of God at work in us, empowering us to obey his commands as we fight, work, sweat, and grind out obedience fully dependent on the grace of God. Now, up to this point, you might think that because we have been rescued from the power of sin and death, a Christian should not, or maybe even will not struggle with sin anymore. And you might be thinking, like, in your heart, like, this is actually discouraged me because I still struggle with sinful desires. Well, I believe this fourth point brings us in close and explains the nature of what it means to live between our salvation and our waiting for Jesus to return and set everything right. Fourth, the weakness of the flesh means sanctification takes effort means sanctification takes effort because of the weakness of the flesh. Verse 19, verse 19 says this, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and now to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification. Now, at first blush, You might read that, and that first line might trip you up. He says, I'm speaking in human terms, as though he normally speaks some alien language like Melmachian from that 90s show, ALF, which talks about an alien that, you know, came to Earth, and he spoke another language from another planet. But that's not what he's talking about here. In fact, I, I think the phrase that follows it up gives us some handlebars to understand what he's getting at. Notice he says, It's because of your natural limitations. Now, natural limitations 
comes from a phrase that literally means weakness of the flesh. It's because of your weakness of the flesh that I have to speak to you in human terms with these metaphors that you will understand. And this does not highlight this phrase, the sinfulness of these Christians, though it's an implication. But it's describing that that mortal body which still exists in the realm of this present evil age and signals the continuing presence of sin in the life of the believers. In other words, there's a real sense in which we're kind of in the wilderness awaiting that promised land that we have been called to in the new heavens and the new earth. We are no longer enslaved in Egypt, but we are awaiting our final destination. And in the in-between, we are still plagued by the attacks of sin and its calling. In fact, even though God has transferred these Christians from slavery to sin to slaves of righteousness, Paul is explaining that that does not mean that they will not still need to fight sin or that they will never struggle with enslavement to sins or never have sinful desires. In other words, you've already been made right with God. You've been made righteous by faith. You've been justified. You've been credited with the very righteousness of Christ. And yet in verse 19, he reminds them that just as we were once slaves of impurity and lawlessness, which only fed off itself and increased, so now we must present our members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. You'll notice again, he's moving from the indicative of the gospel that we have been made right with God by faith to the imperative of the gospel that we must work hard to live a righteous life observing all that Jesus commanded. See, all Christians are called saints or God's sanctified holy ones. It's not just super Christians. It's not just Christians, as the Catholic Church says, who have, you know, created some miracle that can be verified. No, if you are in Christ, you're, you're a saint. You're a holy one. You're part of God's people. And yet, Paul also reminds Christians that they need to be slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. Christians were once trapped in a loop of ever-increasing lawlessness that we were powerless to stop. But now Christ has changed our hearts so that we are grinding out our sanctification from one degree of glory to the next. I don't know who needs to hear this. But one implication of this practically is that you can think of yourself as a Christian and not be a Christian. Now, please don't understand me. I've seen deathbed conversions and am confident that I'm going to joyfully see some of those brothers and sisters in Christ when I get to the new heavens and the new earth. I believe that one of those two thieves on the cross who professed faith in Christ was promised that he would be with Christ in paradise that very day, and he has been there with Christ ever since. And I revel in justification by faith alone. But Paul seems to say here that your life is moving in one of two trajectories, and I'm not saying it's not clunky, right? Like sanctification, being transformed in the image of God, it's a clunky process. There are ebbs and flows. But if you were looking over, say, a decade, The trajectory should be 
up and not down, right? It should not be, as he talks about, lawlessness that gives way to more lawlessness. Sin that is justified, that's given to greater justification for greater sins. That should not be the trajectory. The trajectory should be what? That we are growing in righteousness and being sanctified, looking more and more like Christ over time. Now, I just want to be really clear. I know that some of you have tender consciences who truly believe in Christ. And I'm not trying to give you another reason to doubt because you know your your heart's prone to doubt. We have brothers and sisters who are like that amongst us. I want you to know this is not for you. This is for those of you who might assume that being a Christian means having Jesus and then going on living comfortably with your sins, in your sins, either hidden or exposed because you are presuming on God's grace. See, Paul wants to ask all believers an important question, all professing believers, which way is your life trending? What would your family, your friends, your co-workers If you're a boss, your employees, what would they say about the trajectory of your life? See, nothing matters more in this life than who is your master. Is your master obedience or is it sin? Now, here's why it matters so much. Because in verses 20 to 23, it says there are fruits to these ways of living. Fruits that have eternal consequences. Uh, you'll, You'll notice in verses 20 to 23... Paul warns that the fruit of one is eternal death, being obedient to sin, and the fruit of the other is eternal life, being obedient to righteousness. Here's what he says in verses 20 to 23. He says this, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now... That you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Now, as you think about this, Paul is observing that slavery to sin first means a freedom from righteousness. Now, that's, that's a new nuance. It's, being a slave to sin means freedom from righteousness. Apart from Christ... Before faith, we were not under the power of righteousness. Now, this assumes that there is a a right and a wrong way to live that is determined by something outside of ourselves. In other words, you don't decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. Self-expression is not a virtue according to the Bible in and of itself. There is a standard outside of you, a standard which finds its author in God. He is the truth. He is the one who says what is right and what is wrong. But did you catch that Paul says Christians are now ashamed over the sins sins that they once boasted in? I mean, once again, hinting at that heart change. Like, once I boasted in sin, I reveled in it, I partied with it, but now I look back and I'm ashamed of what once was. There's a, a heart posture towards sin that has changed. I don't, I'm not proud of it. I'm ashamed of it. But did you see why 
They see sin as shameful because they see it in, it's shameful in God's eyes. But they also see the end and the fruit of living for sin. It's death. It's sorrow. Now, I take this death that he speaks of to actually speak of eternal death, not just the first death, but the second. In fact, Revelation 21.8 calls the second death that thing which is reserved for Satan and those who have followed him, those who have lived for sin and its devices. And he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's the end of slavery to sin, living for sin. I take this eternal to be eternal death because of how it's compared with eternal life in verse 22. Did you notice that? Now that we've been freed from sin to become slaves of God, we receive a sweet fruit that leads to sanctification. We more and more look like Christ. But then he goes on to say, and sanctification's end. So those of us who are being changed from one degree of glory to the next, painfully, through work and effort, through dependence on God, that's not the end of it. It's not just an endless cycle of fighting sin. It's, it's actually one day going to be met with eternal life. That is the end. And eternal life here, uh, I think we see a couple of things. First, Paul says sanctification is necessary for salvation on the last day. Sanctification is not our ground of hope when we come before Christ on the last day when he returns. We, we aren't saved because we, by our own strength, like sought to fight and labor for holiness. We aren't saved by faith and works, but a faith that works. See, what he is saying is, is that if you really are under the reign of grace, your posture towards sin and obedience has flopped such that you are now on God's side against sin. So that when you come before God, you are coming before him in the confidence that you truly have put your faith in Christ. That your heart has actually been changed by God. Second, notice that Paul has eternal life here in the sense of living with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth after Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. In other words, he is looking at the end or the culmination of our sanctification, of this earthly life. So here's the question that this test, I think this text demands of us. Which fruit is yours today? Eternal death or eternal life? Is your life marked by increasing sanctification or lawlessness? Well, Christian brothers and sisters, as we close up, I want you to remember that faith in Christ signals a transfer of the Christian from slavery to sin leading to death to a slavery to God leading to eternal life. But let me just call us to beware of a couple of ditches that Christians can fall into and that we need to fight to avoid as we look to find Christ, seek Christ, live in Christ. The first is the ditch of legalism on one side and the other is the ditch of antinomianism on the other. I'm going to talk about each briefly. The devil would be happy for us to follow the devil's logic and presuming on God's grace and sinning. 
In its most basic form, the ditch of legalism actually attempts to earn salvation through our works apart from God's grace. Now, this misunderstanding, what it's doing is it's actually severing those imperatives of the gospel from the indicatives of the gospel, what God has done from what we must do. And it is only focusing on what we must do, what we must do, what we must do, without ever being reminded of the all-enthralling image and vision and truth and reality of what God has done for his people in Christ. We always need to be reminded of the hope that is laid up for us in Christ. It is a regular reservoir of resources for us to have hope that we really can be transformed by the power of God's grace. Not all hold to this. Some respond in legalistic ways. The Roman Catholic Church, for instance, they teach that justification is by faith and works. You might say, well, that sounds so bad. I mean, it's at least part faith and then, you know, little works. Salvation is... In this scheme, part you and part God. That is not the kind of dependent responsibility that the scriptures teach. We are dependent fully on the grace of God that we might obey him. We are saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. And that's a big difference. It's different than being saved by faith and works. Others, some of of a fundamentalist group. Now, I'm a... I'm a fundamentalist in the sense of holding to the fundamentals of the faith, but there are some who are fundamentalists as a movement who say you can act like a Christian and be saved without focusing on true heart change that's ushered in by the gospel. It is a a kind of teaching that says you need to outwardly conform without penetrating to the heart that is needed to be changed by the power of the gospel. Non-Christians and Christians alike can do things that look Christian. Non-Christians and Christians alike can avoid alcohol and bad movies and even not use bad language, but slaves of God. Slaves of God obey from the heart. We do it because we love God, because we've been changed. The other ditch is that of antinomianism, a view which says obedience doesn't matter, so you can do what you want. Now, antinomians, they are severing the indicatives of the gospel from the imperatives. They can be legalists uh, as well, but that's for another day. But here you'll find some antinomian-type teachings that, that you might even read in Christian books, like this idea of letting go and letting God, that victorious Christian living. You know, th- this teaching says that we just need to let Jesus take the wheel of our lives as though our efforts are the biggest hindrance to God bringing about sanctification in our lives. Let me just ask you, does that seem to be what Paul is saying here? Like just your your biggest problem is you're just trying too hard. No, the, the biggest problem is Paul says that A, we need to make sure that we have the grace of God, that our hearts have been changed. And then B, if we have, we're going to give our lives to that. What about the idea of a carnal Christian? Now, this is a teaching that says that it is possible for you to be justified and right with God without you ever being sanctified or changed more and more into the image of God. You can have Jesus as your your Savior, but maybe not as your Lord. Like, that's possible. You can be saved and yet not in any way observe or acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. Does that sound like what Paul's saying here? That doesn't seem to be at all what he's saying. Paul says you're either a slave to sin ending in death or slave to God, ending in eternal life. 
and some dispensationalists. Not all or even most, but some teach that we all have crazy cousins, right? Some teach that the radical difference between the dispensation of works and the dispensation of grace means that obedience does not matter anymore under the reign of grace. Does that sound like what Paul is saying? That we are under grace, so you, you, don't, you don't really have to obey anymore. It's okay. I mean, you can if you want. It's an optional amenity of Christianity. No, it seems that Paul is saying this is basic Christianity. See, Christians praise God for making them slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification, which its end is eternal life with God in joy, free from sin, free from its power forevermore in the presence of our triune God. And they labor to live a righteous life to the glory of God. But this morning, if you're a non-Christian, don't miss the devastating effects of death in this life as being only a foretaste of that eternal death that's coming. You are either a slave of sin this morning or a slave of God. You are either destined this morning to one day find yourself in eternal conscious comment, suffering, facing the just wrath of God, or, or experiencing eternal, unexpressible joy with a new body in the presence of the God who created you forever. And the difference between the two is whether or not you put your faith in Christ and live for him today. If you haven't done that, talk to me before you leave. I'd love to talk to you about how you can become a child of God if you haven't already. Well, now let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts to sing. Father, as we come before you, we praise you that you are our sovereign God. Sovereign God who gives life to those who are dead, who rescues those who are slaves of sin, facing eternal just wrath who have received your grace such that you are changing us and transforming us as slaves of God more and more into the image of your son. And the end of that, we are promised, is eternal life with you. For those who do not know you this morning, Father, we pray that you would awaken them to see their need of you and have them respond by faith. For those who have received you by faith, Father, we pray that you would Protect us and gird us this morning with the logic that is from heaven that is ready for the devil's logic that attacks us in our moments of weakness. Lord, do this to the glory of your name we do pray.